Hello and welcome to our audio commentary. I'm Nick Redman, and I'm sitting here with Malcolm McDowell, whose portrayal of Alex Delage in A Clockwork Orange might be the seminal depiction of delinquency in movie history. What do you think, Malcolm? Uh, I don't think in those terms, Nick. And if I'm offered the part, if I'm lucky enough to be offered the part, I play it to the best of my ability. Of course, uh, you know, we're talking a different era. We're talking the early 70s. Just finished the 60s, which I suppose if you're going to, you know, put tags on things, um, the 60s, you know, I ended up um, in 1968 doing a film, my first film called If, directed by Lindsay Anderson, playing a rebel. And it's from that performance that Stanley Kubrick saw me in that film and cast me as Alex. And um, I asked him why he cast me. Um, and he said, well, when I was reading the book, I couldn't get your face out of my mind reading that character. Very lucky for me. So I didn't, I didn't really have to audition. I didn't audition at all, of course. And um, he wanted someone who looked a bit like a thug, but who had, this is his words, great intelligence. And uh, lucky for me, I fit the bill. I believe that Stanley actually said that uh, if you hadn't existed, he wouldn't have made the film because he could not think of anyone else that could have played the part. And as we see here in the Corova Milk Bar with those wonderful sculptures, which were mm. designed by Liz Moore, who was a young woman in her 20s, and I believe she had actually designed the Star Child for 2001. That's a bit of information which I didn't know. This was the only set that was actually built we didn't use any studio at all. This was a, a sort of a disused factory that, in Elstree, and they just built this set in it. And rather, uh, is this Liz Moore herself as the model? You think? I, th I believe that Stanley had asked her to be the model, but she declined, and uh, and they settled on another model who oh. who you're looking at. Here's Paul Farrell. Paul Farrell, wonderful performance. Just, I want to go back to that opening shot, which I think is very, very important. It's a brilliant piece of Stanley Kubrick, actually, because he's on a track with a zoom lens, and he starts very close. And I remember him coming up to me when he'd seen the dailies of that shot, quite excited, and he said, Malcolm, do you realize that you toasted uh, the camera or the audience? And I said, that's right. He went, oh, I didn't notice. Why did you do that? And I said, well, Stanley, I just wanted to let the audience know they were in for one hell of a ride. And he said, oh, I like, I like that. <laughs> anyway, Paul Farrell was a wonderful drunk, and he was a very sweet guy, and he wasn't actually the first choice. The first choice was an actor, an old actor, Billy, Billy something or other, I can't remember now, but Stanley was brilliant at, um, if things weren't working, quickly changing them and using the best of what he had. And we actually shot, this scene was going to be, in fact, we shot it already. It was a scene shot in Aylesbury, in a big square in a town called Aylesbury, in the north of London, with these huge, giant plastic toys, like huge ducks 30 foot high, and they were very surreal. And it was the guy coming home from the library, and, you know, Alex attacks him, gets these priceless books, works of art, and, of course, rips them up throws them into the air, saying, and I'll never forget the line, there's a mackerel of a cornflake for you, which I always thought was a great line. 
and, and it was a surreal and beautiful scene. But unfortunately, the actor, he couldn't make it for the next, the retribution side. So we changed quickly to Paul Farrell and made it a drunk. Here we are at the uh, old Yisus Casino, which I think was at Tags Island, wasn't it? It was indeed, yeah. And wasn't that where Charlie Chaplin used to perform with Fred Carno? Uh, I believe so. I believe so. And um, this, to me, though, um, was the least interesting thing to shoot because this, you know, is just basically an all-action scene. And it was really the stuntmen's dream. Finally, they got something to do after months of sitting down doing nothing. Rather gorgeous girl here. There is a brilliant close-up, though, of the gang leader of the other gang where he opens his flick knife, and I think it's one of the best close-ups, actually, in the whole film. That was uh, Richard Connaught's moment of fame, I believe. It was indeed, so uh, you probably tell me what happened to him. I don't know if he, if he continued as an actor, actually, afterwards, but um, yeah, he well, certainly he, will be part of film history. He certainly made a very good thug. I alluded earlier to the fact that the Corova Milk Bar was one of the few sets, which of course it was, and I believe it was Stanley Kubrick's plan to make this almost like a documentary, and all of the sound was recorded live, wasn't it? There was very it little post-syncing. I think it was the first time that these little pen pocket radio mics were ever used in a film. Stanley got them from Germany, from Stenheiser, and, you know, I did not post-sync one line of the film. All the stuff, even on the embankment, which is, you know... It's one of the busiest streets probably in the world, continuous traffic, horns blaring, the whole thing. And, I, you know, with these radio mics on, it was absolutely perfect sound. There's the close-up. Very nice, too. Come on, boys, let's get them. So was most of this done uh, with doubles? No, all this is us, but um, obviously the major stuff, uh, I guess that's me. Um, the Beatles have got a lot to answer for with these haircuts, that's all I can say. Um, but uh, that wasn't me. That, that was Warren Clark, plays Dim. Um, just these little cuts, you know, basically it's, it's sort of, you know, action filmmaking, little tiny little pieces. And of course all scored to uh, Rossini's The Thieving Magpie, and this became a really early example of using montage with music. Uh, in fact, as we will discuss later on, the music plays an incredibly important part in this film, doesn't it? It is, well, a, it is a character Be in the film. Beethoven is really the extra character. and um, You know, I, I, of course, knew Beethoven. I knew the ninth somewhat before the film. But during the film and after it, it sort of... I lived and breathed Beethoven. And Stanley, of course, is one of the great exponents of music and film. In fact, there was a story that I saw him with his earphones on in his study, and I walked in, and he put his finger up to his mouth, shh, you know. To, I said, oh, I'm sorry. I thought, my God, he's listening to the next installment of Von Karajan's Beethoven's Ninth for me to listen to. I was kind of excited. And after, like, 20 minutes, he took the earphones off, and he went, gee, Malk, um, another near miss at Heathrow Airport. I went, oh, oh, really? He'd been listening to the traffic controllers. You know, <laughs> That was our stand. In Anthony Burgess's original novel, of course, Alex has a sort of a wider appreciation of opera and more esoteric classical music. Mm. But of course, it's a film device, but a very successful one in this case, to hone it all down to Beethoven and to specifically make it about the ninth. I think so, because cause the ninth is the sort of trademark of the Third Reich, if you like. Um, and um, even though he's not a, you know, uh, 
by any means a Nazi. Of course, um, this is the dichotomy with this part. It's one of the most extraordinary roles that an actor will ever ask to be played because here you have this thug rapist murderer on the one hand and yet a man who um, has all these um, sides of him that, of course, we can all... Um, enjoy and like his appreciation well first of all his appreciation of life and I think that's very important that his joie de vie is very infectious to an audience and they kind of even though he's doing these immoral things that you kind of go with him because he's so likable in a way because he loves what he's doing I mean you know he's raping this woman singing, singing in the rain. And, and well, well, I think one of the most shocking things about the character and, and what made it so controversial originally is that he is intelligent. I mean, he likes classical music. Mm. He seems to have an aristocratic bearing. He mm. appears to be knowledgeable about many things and, of course, takes a perverse delight in the, uh, in the horrors of the night, as it were. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I suppose the thing is that Burgess foretold... Um, a lot of things in his book. And I think this is also one of the most successful translations of a book to film. And I'll say that because the book was a classic. And most classics you have to be really wary of, as we all know, they usually make terrible films. Because classics are usually about atmosphere. And atmosphere is so difficult for a director to you know, capture on film. Stanley, of course, uh, he knew exactly what he was doing. You know, the reason I think that he chose this film was that he'd come off 2001, which had gone way over budget, and, you know, Aubrey, his tenure as the chairman of MGM had come to an end, primarily because of the over-costs of 2001. So Stanley decided to, to make a low-budget film. This was his low-budget film. And he wanted to prove that he could do it and he could make a great film for very little money, which is what he did. He'd been introduced to the material by Terry Southern, who later to write Easy Rider, when they were working together on Dr. Strangelove. Uh, and after a lapsing of a few years, where well, I understand the rights to the book had sort of changed hands, and it ended up in the hands of Cy Litvinoff and Max Raab, mm. uh, who were the people that Stanley ultimately purchased the rights from right. in 1969. Thank God he did. Now, you've got to tell this story, Malcolm, because I know that this was largely to do with you, how he ends up singing in the rain here. Yes, I mean, um, the thing was that we just shot the end of the film, which was exhausting and euphoric, and to find the end of the film was... was we were so excited and happy. And then, of course, we come in at 8 o'clock the next day, made up, ready to go on this sequence, and... Frankly, I was exhausted, Stanley was exhausted, and we were elated and exhausted. So I just sat around for four or five days, frankly, um, and uh, in the script it was the droogs come in and throw bottles of booze through a window and attack the wife and blah, blah, blah. Really nothing very interesting at all. It was a sort of not particularly brilliant. And, and the thing about Stanley, which is why he was so great was that he would never shoot anything unless, as he called it, it was magic. And he'd say, Mark, where's the magic? Oh, um, talking of magic, um, 
Adrian Corrie. Adrian Corrie, who came up to me before the shooting and said, well, Malcolm, you're going to find out that I'm a real redhead. I yes. said, oh, oh, really? Oh, 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 okay. Um, uh, she was absolutely adorable. Anyway, uh, we were sitting around, and after like four days, Stanley came up to me and said, can you dance? And I said, can I dance? Stanley, I'm singing in the rain. Boom. And started to improvise, slapping, kicking, and all in time singing in the rain. He literally he was laughing so hard. And, and he said, Malcolm, come with me. We got into his car, drove back to the house, which was about half an hour away from this location. He got in, called New York and bought the rights to Singing in the Rain. We went back for a whole week or 10 days it took to shoot that sequence. But it really is key in the film because it shows a real satirical side. It's very funny, of course, very black, um, scary, of course, but thrilling at the same time. Yes, and what happens in the book, of course, there is that when they show up at the house of the author, he is in a man named Burgess, and he's writing a novel called A Clockwork Orange. That's right. And Alex derisively reads excerpts of the book to the Droogs before they assault the wife. Yeah, yeah. Did you not have a uh, meeting with Gene Kelly uh, sometime after making the film? Uh, no, I never actually met him because when I was introduced to him, he just at a party in Hollywood years later, uh, three or four years later, he looked at me and quickly turned away and walked off. I think he was disgusted. But as I tried to sort of, I went, but it was an homage, you know. I mean, I had no thoughts about uh, ever, you know, decrying what he did, of course. You know, I had to, I was euphoric at the time. Euphoria to me, as given to us by Hollywood in Singing in the Rain, was Gene Kelly stomping on that street in that water and the rain coming down, the umbrella, his dancing. That is euphoria. That was the, as happiest as a human has ever been. And that's, of course, exactly why the scene works as wonderfully well as it exactly. does. You know, and I'm it sorry was. that Mr. Kelly was not able to... Uh, well, know, I can understand that. that he wasn't able to see that, to be honest. I mean, he was a brilliant artist, of course, uh, one of the greats. And um, I suppose he thought it was a bastardization, but truly, it really meant that his work sort of uh, got into way more than just it being a movie. It, it's, um, and it survived into the future and exactly. has survived into the future. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, um, absolutely. Um, that was a great friend of mine, Gay Brown, in the middle there. I asked her to come in and do this as a favor. She did. Um, and it's wonderful. I decided to play it, incidentally, with a northern accent rather than a cockney accent. And I said this to Stanley, he said, oh, gee, I don't care, do whatever you want. Um, I remember asking him once, um, Stanley, could you, um, is there anything you could tell me, you know, about the character? And he just looked at me quite blank and said, you know, gee, Malk, um, I'm not Rada. Uh, so in a weird way, I really knew where I stood, is that Stanley, I was very glad he said that, actually, because he made it crystal clear that, you know, his way of working was not like somebody like Lindsay Anderson, who was a theater director primarily, worked with the actors on the psychological effects, blah, 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 blah. Stanley was, show me. I'll tell you whether when it's good. 
Which he did, and and that's I said to him, that's why you like working with Peter Sellers, wasn't it? Because he'd do forty different voices, and you, you know you'd pick one, and and that was perfect. This was a place called Thames Mead, which was a sort of social experiment. You know, one of these places that um, a housing estate, sort of the Labour government bill to make, and of course, within ten years was a slum. You know, typical. In fact, there's a whole scene by the marina. I mean, it was like a dirty, filthy um, sort of pond in the middle of this thing, which was... And I actually killed a rat with those big boots that I'm wearing. I actually kicked it in the head and killed it. In the scene you're referring to where you attack two members of your yes. droogs, that was yeah. also at Thamesmead, yeah. was it? Because I yeah. had, I've never had any idea where that was. Yeah. I'm glad you yeah. pointed that out. This is rather fun. And, of course, Stan loves it. You know, we put the old bra there and all that and... Um, that was a real pee, by the way. Drank a lot of coffee and uh, managed to urinate on camera, which is you have to be fairly relaxed for that. And this is all a real apartment as well. It's um, it... This was a, a real place that at a high-rise, 15 floors or 17 floors up, uh, in Boreham Wood, uh, literally three minutes from Stanley's home, which is where he liked to shoot everything. And all they did, they went in, of course, and, and um, you know, modernized it, futurized it, and... Um... And he has some interesting uh, objets d'art in his flat, you know, including that uh, For Christ, which I believe was a statue designed by the Mackink brothers. Yes, that, that was the Dancing Christ. Well, the the piece that he does to the music is, is a classic piece of Kubrick, of course, um, and is brilliant, I think. Um, now, this was the first time that I had to react to the, the ninth. And uh, so... You know, I said to Stanley, you know, have you got big speakers? Because I'm gonna, I don't know what I'm gonna do, Stan. I've got to really get into it and um, and really, uh, you know, find a look. And um, you know, I was terrified about going over the top. He, of course, encouraged me to go further and further, but I resisted it somewhat because I kept telling him it has to be within the bounds of reality. You can't you know, start going, eat chewing furniture. You've got to really keep it, you know, a hold of it. Here's the great uh, dancing Christ. Tell us a bit about Basil, the snake. You didn't like snakes, did you? Not particularly. I don't think anybody does, do they? Now, look, people think I'm masturbating. Yeah, it's bullshit. I'm taking off my boots. But I'm finding this look. This is the first time that really this look and uh, the eyes start to go further in the head and it's a sort of the ninth and the chorus coming up and all that. Did he let you uh, improvise quite a bit? I mean, you you were able no. to determine. He didn't like improvisation. I mean, he, of course, I after we'd done it a few times, I would go off on a riff, which, of course, invariably he shot. But we didn't do a lot of great improvisation. So there's one scene that is purely improvised, which is in the hospital at the end, and I'll, we'll get to that and I'll, I'll explain it to you. Is your mum, Sheila Rayner? Yes, and Philip Stone, who played my dad, he's since passed away not long ago, but I'd seen him in one of Lindsay Anderson's plays, The Farm, and uh, he was a regular. He's an oh, lucky man as well. And so I got him for that, as I got Warren Clark to play Dim. He's a fabulous actor, and... Um, I believe Philip Stone is the only actor to have the uh, strange distinction of having been in three consecutive Stanley Kubrick movies. Yes, um, 
You see, Stanley really adored him, which is great, because he was a fabulous actor, and that is indeed a record, because I think if you play the lead, though, you just about only have one. <laughs> it's okay if you're playing supporting part, you know, you get away with it. One of the interesting things I always think about as we watch Philip Stone and Sheila Rayner here together is that Sheila Rayner was much older. She was almost 20 years older than Philip Stone, yet you never make that association when you see them. No, no. It's so true because Philip is sort of... Well, he's got this wonderful northern... Uh, he was a, uh, was a wonderful guy, and I used to love him. He used to love cricket and all. We'd talk the critic, cricket and football and all that. And um, a very sweet man. Um... Now we're coming to the um, a brilliant scene, I think, one of the great scenes in this with um, Aubrey Morris as the um, as the sort of uh, the what would we call him a truant uh, inspector or a person who keeps his eye on uh, yeah, malfunctioning whatever. kids. Yeah. Actually, I guess we should say at this point, too, is the age that your character is supposed to be. Of course, the original book was written in this Nadsat language, mm -hmm. which is literally um, a kind of a variation of Russian. The word Yiddish. Yiddish. The word pirat Nadsat in Russian literally right. means 15, which is the age Alex is in the book. Did you have any idea what age he was really supposed no. to be? And you know what? It was meaningless anyway. Um, because uh, you, it's, it's not a film that's sort of realistic in that sense. It has a definite style. And um, as you can see, this is absolutely surrealistic, really, all this. Look at this with the teeth and, you know, this incredible actor, Aubrey Morris, um, who was wonderful to work with. I think we shot this in literally two days. And um, that was it, you know, and they all talked about how many takes Stanley did. He hardly... I mean, I think I was lucky to get four or five takes in some scenes. I mean, I was, once he had it, he had it. He knew. The great thing about Stanley, I remember once asking him, you know, what was his style? How did he direct? And, you know, I was rather naive. I guess it was my fourth film, but it was, you know, a, one with one of the great masters of filmmaking. And um, he said, well, Malk, um, I never know what I want but I do know what I don't want, and which is a brilliant thing to know. Now, there is an enormous amount of comedy in this movie, which I think a lot of people did not readily take for granted when it was originally released. Um, it's both physical and verbal. Mm -hmm. Very mm -hmm. black, isn't it, the comedy? Very. But look at this. I mean, it's brilliant stuff, you know. I mean, you know, it's very, very funny, and, uh, you know, the great setup. It's just... It's just a two-shot. He never moves the camera. It's, I mean, this is why it works, you know. And just at the end, there's a close-up of him and there's a cutaway of me at the door um, saying something like, as clear as an azure sky. I always love that line. Yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, it's strange how, I mean, Aubrey Morris's performance here. I mean, Mr. Deltoid is weird. I had to get my weird. hand over my privates because I knew it was coming. <laughs> yes. It looks like it really hurts when he hits you. Yeah, well, of course it didn't, but... Um, uh, Aubrey and he was nudging. I mean, it was he was such an extraordinary actor, really. I mean, larger than life, and and he, you know, he was he was brilliant. I mean, he was prepared. I, I mean, it's great. It's just a great comic moment because you don't see my fist there. You know, you just see him hit me, and you think, wow, you know, I took a full smack. 
You know, when asked about where the title came from, Anthony Burgess always used to say that it came from a real Cockney rhyming slang, a phrase that people evidently use yeah, as, as queer, queer as, as a, a clockwork orange. orange. Yeah. And, he uh, heard it in a pub, he told me. It, uh, uh, often people accused him of actually making that up because they said that they didn't know the uh, the phrase, but it seems to really work. Of course, it means as queer as not in a homosexual sense, but in no. a very strange sense. Yeah. And that is certainly the ambience that permeates the film. He it? told me, um, Burgess, that, and uh, I spent a week with him after the film, the opening of the film in New York. I spent a whole week traveling around with him, and um, he told me that he got the idea for this film from um, being in Moscow in the early 60s, being in a coffee shop, in a coffee bar, and he said the windows are all steamed up, and he was sitting by the window talking to one of his compatriots or whatever, and these thugs, hooligans, were pressed their faces up to the window, looking in, making, you know, because he was obviously a foreigner, dressed differently and you know they could tell that a mile away and they were pressed and it was very threatening he said and that's what kicked off the spark of clockwork orange that was the whole beginning of it and i think that's why you know he used um the nadsat uh, based on russian and yiddish he wrote the book very quickly, um, in, strangely in a year that he wrote also three or four other novels. He thought he had a brain tumor at the time mm. and he felt that he had to provide for his wife and had to crank the stuff out. And ironically, when Clockwork Orange was published, um, he's a man who loves language. He was accused by the critics of ruining <laughs> the English language. Yeah, the interesting sort of byline to that is that he was the book reviewer for the Yorkshire Post in England, and he gave the four books who he'd, that he'd put out, by the way, under pseudonyms, because he couldn't have four books by the same author coming out in the same year. Uh, this was kind of fun. This was done in a thing called the drugstore on the King's Road in Chelsea. And um, it would always amuse me, because Stanley kind of had a little bit of a shine out for the brunette, and she was an Australian girl. I can't remember her name now, but she asked if she could have her name taken off the film because she didn't want her, her mother and father to see it in Australia, which always amused me. Now, the Chelsea drugstore was, of course, a, a bar, wasn't it? It was a kind of a bar restaurant. It wasn't a yes. record store. Now, uh, now of course, it's uh, McDonald's, alas, how the world has changed. It was a famous hangout. For it was a famous stars. hangout and a lot of fun, and it was great fun to shoot there. And I had this extraordinary coat that Malena Cananero found for me. And she did the costumes. I think it was her first big film to do costumes. She went on, of course, to win Academy Awards and all that. But this was very early days for her. By the way, the whites and all that, and the bowl hat, the whites were actually from my cricket gear that I had in the back of my car. And the cod piece that I wore was actually a cricket protector that you wear you wear the, under your trousers. And, and actually, he said, oh, I'll put it over, you know. And he said, I like that cod piece effect. This is a kind of fun thing because... Um, I read somewhere that um, it, it took 28 minutes to shoot. 28 minutes, getting dressed, undressed, doing the business with the girls, talking to Stanley. He's by the car, it's a, by the, uh, the camera. It's a big Mitchell that's in the doorway of the room, so we couldn't get in or out. And so I knew that he kind of, you know, had a little bit of a thing for the brunette. So when it comes to the brunette, um, I give her an extra thing and he's going, OK, that's enough, Malk. OK, that's enough. OK, get off right here. I give her the extra 
bada bing. And um, it really pissed him off. And it was the... Because I was giggling the whole time. I loved it, you know. And apparently the composer that, at that time, Wendy Carlos, gave him the idea of using that speeded-up William Tell overture. When the film came out and got an X certificate, it was one of the reasons cited by the uh, film censors that, that that scene was, because they said that uh, then makers of pornographic films would simply speed up their scenes and that they would feel that they could get a regular certificate for it. Yeah. This particular scene here, by the time we came to shoot this, I was sort of over it because we'd use this scene as the um, audition piece for all the other gang members because they all have a little bit to say. And so I must have done this scene a hundred times. I begged him to get hold of Warren Clark as Dim, and he resisted, resisted. Uh, I don't know why. Well, I do know why. He had Warren come in and do a tape you know, for Jimmy Liggett, who was the casting director. And, of course, a tape is ludicrous. You can't tell if an, an actor can act from a piece of tape. You have to at least talk to them and have a human contact, something that I know Stanley found really weird. And um, so that uh, after about four months of this, of trying to find Dim, um, I'm in his office and suddenly the intercom went and it was Margaret's um, secretary who said, oh, Warren Clark's here, Stanley. And I kind of looked at him. I thought, oh, God. And he looked at me and he goes, well, Mal, do you want to say hi to Warren? And he didn't say anything. So I went in and I read with Warren, of course, who, you know, of course, you know, absolutely struck out with it beautifully. So Stanley pulled me aside into the next room and he said, He's so great, I'm going to offer him the part now. And I went, thank God, Stanley. Well, Warren Clark is, as you say, wonderful and mm. uh, has gone on, as many British people will know, to have a stellar career in British television. He's a big television, television star. Big television yeah. star. And James Marcus on the left of our screen there, he too has had a very substantial television career. Has he? I, never, I didn't know what happened to him. Ironically, the other member of your group, Michael Tarn, he was the only one who was a teenager. He was the yes. youngest by far, I believe, of the four of you. Yes, we used to pull terrible tricks on poor old Michael Tarn, but um, I don't know, don't tell me he's become a priest or something, because, uh, because I believe anything. But um, no, Michael Tarn did have, uh, I'm going back to the very first shot in the film, when the four of us are lined up in the Crover Milk Bar, Mike Tarn, because he knew that I was giving this look, and he's, and I said to him, well, is there anything you can do, Michael? You know, do you have it? And, and he did this fluttering, rolling of the eyes. And I said, you know, that, Warren, look at this. He goes, yeah, that's great. He, do that, do that. So, of course, we're shooting, action, the whole thing. Pull back, cut. Michael, what the hell do you think you're doing? <laughs> and he goes, he told me to do it. I said, you snake. <laughs> yeah. He was very good, uh, James Marcus. In fact, I, I think, of course, he goes on in this film to become a police officer, and he yes. should have, in fact, been made an honorary member of the Police Officers Association because he played policemen so often later in his Did career. He? Yeah. Yes. Big, big, big money. Have you not everything you need? Anyway, this uh, this was a, a good scene shot out out at Thames Mead. That mural behind you there, what was that painted for the film? What, what yes, they're pieces, you see. You can see them. They went up in pieces and they just put them on and then just took them off the wall when we left. Did the graffiti change throughout the film or did it stay the same? I don't know. Maybe they've had a few more cocks or something. I don't know. <laughs> but look at Warren. He's just great. 
He is a very um, sympathetic and affecting character, yeah. isn't he? As yeah. Dim, later unsympathetic when he becomes the police officer. But that's what's brilliant. He has, you know, an arc in the character. I mean, as sort of small as it is, but but he makes it. He just made it his own, and, and he did a fantastic job. And, and you had obviously, you had, as you just said, you knew him. Had you worked with him before, or just knew him? No, somehow? I hadn't worked with him. But you know, this is the the marina, the marina where I kill the rat. And know. that's Thames Mead as well. That's, that's Thames up. Mead, exactly. And this is all Kubrick. This is the brilliance of Kubrick because I'm going Stanley. This is so boring. You know, we're just walking along and. He said, it, it looks kind of good on a camera, Mark, you know, I think this is going to be a beautiful scene. It's a little slow motion, and I always knew when Stan was in trouble was that he'd get out the zoom lens. And if I went, oh, if all else fails, I see the zoom lens coming out, and I used to just joke and rib him about it, you know. Again, we take it for granted today, but in 1971, to have a scene play this long in slow motion was extremely unusual. Oh, yeah. Look at this, though. I mean, it's like a ballet, like a ballet, you know. This poor guy. That's gorgeous. Look at that. Into that filthy... Yeah, into that... Ugh, God, thank God I didn't have to go in. Poor... It was freezing. I think we shot it in November, and it was cold. Yeah, because the actual shooting schedule... This looks schedule... like a demented, whirling dervish, you know. The actual shooting period was what, late 1970 to the beginning no, of 1971? No, 69, I think, wasn't it? No, it would have been 70 into 71. Oh, but, yes. But the, but the winter period, it must have been like yeah. November, December, January. Yeah, it was. February, March. Yeah, there was a straw behind that and a little bulb I had to push as I pulled it across this good old, you know, simple thing. And he had a diving suit under that, thank God. Because at the time, that water was quite dirty, wasn't it? Ooh, I mean, I mean, it was a sewer. You couldn't swim in the Thames, and if you ever fell in it by accident, you had to have your stomach pumped. Yeah. Now, this was some pub or something. I, I don't remember quite where this was. It was out in Elstree somewhere, of course, close to Stanley's. Down in the snug of the Duke of New York. Now they knew who... One of the things that gives it its real life is the fact that it mostly takes place in actual locations, isn't it? I mean, it has yes. a real sense of of a life about it. Yes. A life being lived. And look how beautifully it's lit. John Alcott, of course, um, it's interesting, the lighting, because it's all one-source lighting. In other words, the lighting that you see in the frame, often you'll see a lamp or something, um, that's what's lighting the scene. Um, Stanley sent off... Uh, to Germany to get these high-voltage lights, these really powerful bulbs that put out tremendous light. And we use those, especially in the cat lady scene, you'll see all the lights there. And, and in the home scene, where singing in the rain is, for instance, all the lights there, that's one source lighting. And, you know, you can really tell that Stanley Kubrick started as a stills cameraman. And because, you know, they are, honestly, stills. I mean, look at this. You see the light at the back and the cat lady. That is what's lighting the scene primarily. Of course, there's a little fill, but not much. Are some of those paintings by Christiane? Do you, no, do you know not? none of these. The painting by Christiana is in, in um, Home, 
the, with Patrick McGee. It's that beautiful picture of the um, painting of the garden, uh, which is on the left-hand side as, you, as I come in. Uh, these are not. These are um, something that he found. Tell me more. I'm not sure if this was Burgess's idea or something that perhaps that Stanley had. No, I'll the tell idea. you. In the book, it's an old, dear old lady in her puss pots. She's like an, an, a sweet little... But Stanley cast uh, Miriam Carlin, who you feel could eat Alex up and spit him out for breakfast, which was sort of a very interesting way to go because, um, you know, he, he didn't want Alex to lose all sympathy. He wanted her to be strong and bullish and... and um, I mean, she says, you little shit, get out of here. And you feel, wow... If she ever got hold of him, she'd kill him. Yes, you actually feel that she can prevail in the situation here. Yeah. And Miriam told Stanley that she did yoga, so that's why he used that. He had her doing yoga, and it was, you know, that Stanley was brilliant on the fly. That's where he was, you know, at his most brilliant, was when things, you thought, oh, my God, it's a disaster, and he would turn it into something of pure genius. And his casting uh, of all the major character parts, uh, he chose people that were familiar, by and large, to British audiences. Miriam Carlin had starred in the rag trade in the mm -hmm. 60s and again in the 70s, mm. so she was a sitcom star. Yeah. Uh, but she's very, very um, aggressive in her, uh, in her attitude toward him here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a fabulous piece, this, actually. And, oh, Stanley made up this line about, uh, which I didn't even know what it meant, about... Uh, magazines or something. This line when I come in and, and because that's a very American thing. It would never happen in England. I kept saying to him, "What the hell am I? What are you talking about?" Uh, you know, it, um, it's the first line that I say when I come in. I uh, hi 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 there, you know, and all that. This is again a house in Boreham Wood. Everything very close. And there's the phallus. I don't know what ever happened to that thing. I wish I had got it now. It's, it's a beautiful work of art. But one of the recurring themes um, artistically here is that people have, as it were, erotic art in their homes, as if perhaps in the future erotic art would become as popular as, yeah. as regular art. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Is that really you going up the drain point? Uh, I have to be honest, yes. <laughs> no, it's not. No. <laughs> no. Uh, I think it was Roy Scammell was, was my stunt, but he was wonderful. But um, look at this picture, the lens, the light. Extraordinary. Those lights on the right, on the desk, that's all that's lighting the scene. And they're the high-powered bulbs I was talking about. And they're all the puss-pots wandering around, pissing all over the place. God, it stank in that place. That was shot at a real health farm in Hertfordshire. There is also a, a very wide use of um, of handheld cameras in this film, and I believe that didn't Stanley operate some of that himself sometimes? He did, along you, with usually quite badly, I have to say. I used to say, Stan, could you please not get so much sky in? I said, I've never seen anything so bad in all my life. He'd go, what are, you, what, are you, what are you talking about? I never, ever heard him once raise his voice, by the way. He never, he had a very gentle delivery, and... Um, he never raised his voice, even when he was really pissed. He used to just be totally silent. You could see, oh, my God, you know. With, reg was, with regard to his methodology, I mean, for someone who was so focused on detail as he was, did you get the sense that he was enjoying himself when he was making the film? Oh, he had great fun making this. 
we had so much fun shooting this bit. And the next piece where I'm attacking her with the dildo, he was holding the camera. It was his camera, you know, he was operating because you could only have two of us in the room. And look at this shot, brilliant. Look at the framing of that, isn't that delightful? And then it rocks. And I think I did some kind of weird, whoa, double take on it. It had a very strange motion. Look at this, very funny. <laughs> I don't know if that was designed by uh, that young lady, Liz Moore, as well. It no, I think, that, I think that was some art piece that Stanley found um, at one of the Thames docks, the whatever, that had become sort of an art gallery. I think that's what he told me. She picks up, of course, the bust of Beethoven, which I thought was quite a nice touch. Yes, he's uh, literally going to be fighting against his, uh, his yeah. idol here. Yeah, but look, you think, God, if she hits him with that, she's killed him. And this is Stanley operating, actually, now. And behind him, one of the very few guests that we had on the set was Alexander Walker, who was the film critic for the Evening Standard in London. He was there that day. So he had to hide behind Stanley and hold on to his uh, waist and and go around well, with him. It's very interesting that he would be allowed to be in the He was know, a friend of Stanley's. Yes. Look at this, though. This is a wonderful cut. That's an ingenious way to end Genius. the scene, too. Absolutely. And look at the cat behind. Sleepy. I believe Alexander Walker was one of the first critics in England to really as it were, promote or advocate Stanley as an auteur, you know. I mean, I, I think that mm. he was very influential in public opinion about, about Stanley's role. What, from um, Lolita, you mean? From... Uh, Which was his first film in England, wasn't it? Yes, yes. And uh, I think and that strange love. Stanley Kubrick directs was the book that Alexander Walker published yeah. around the yeah. time of this film's release, I think. Yeah, yeah. That was a plastic bottle that hurt like hell. And nice that it should be the milk, of course, that they're drinking in the milk bar, which is spiked with the drugs. Yes. Sort of a nice ironic touch. They have such lovely names too, those drugs, don't they? Drencrum. Synthomesk. Velocet, I think. Velocet, yeah. This is a wonderful sequence. All I remember about this sequence, Aubrey Morris spitting at me endlessly. I think we did 12 takes of him spitting... And he said, but Stanley, I, I really have no more spittle left. And so, um, what's his name pipes up? Stephen Burkhoff. Stephen Burkhoff pipes up and says, um, oh, uh, Stanley, I <laughs> drags up some oysters, you know. He says, I, I got plenty of spit. And, of course, he spat on me for another 20 takes. Oh, so it was a mixture of spit that you yeah. And he wanted it on the nose, dribbling down. He was very specific about it. Stephen Burkhoff, of course, in the frame here, he was a, an experimental theatrist, wasn't he? he was yeah, a writer, he's a brilliant director. guy. He's brilliant, you know, and, and he's... I think he's a brilliant actor too, actually. You can see it here. He's, he gives me as good as I give him. But it's a great touch here, the hand-up-the-crotch trick. And boom! I love all this. And, and uh, it's very funny, of course. The tea, the cakes. It's so England, you know. Um, oh, just business as usual. Oh, hello. Yes, you know. Yes. Stephen Burkhoff went on to considerable success in Beverly Hills Cop and he Rambo, did. too. He was yeah. brilliant heavy. Yeah, he's a very good actor, and he's a brilliant writer also. So um, 
I was always rather sad that I didn't work with Stephen again, actually. I suppose there's still time, but anyway, he was very good in this scene. They're all brilliant, though. Perhaps you'd care to come inside. And Aubrey Morris, he's 80 now, and I still see him and um, get him in any film that I can. And he's a charming, sweet man who lives in Los Angeles, actually. Oh, it's nice to know that he's still, uh, still he going. He is still around. The end of the John Carney on the left uh, also appeared as a heavy in a number of Did he? British yeah. productions. Yeah. This it's, is... it's fun seeing these actors. Wonderful, uh, wonderful. Yeah, and they were all so good. And it takes us back to, uh, to an earlier era uh, where the smaller parts were chosen with great care in a way that one thinks that perhaps that care doesn't uh, exist so much these days. Don't you? I always think they are, but I don't know. I mean, uh, of course, there were a great acting pool, you know, basically from the stage in England, but still the same. I mean, you had started on the stage, hadn't you? Yes, oh yes, we all start on the stage in England. Uh, you have to be a stage actor, otherwise you're not an actor. And... Um, I went basically from stage to television to film. And actually, I was very happy to have done television, to have learned how to really act in front of a camera. Not that there's really anything any different, but you do learn the different pace and different techniques, of course. Here's the great spit. That's a, that is a good spit, I have to say. So, Stephen Burkhoff, thank you for that lovely spittle. And it gave me a nice chance to do a little smile. <laughs> Which is, by the way, how Lindsay Anderson told me I should play the part. And um, the first day of shooting, which is coming up, uh, it's actually in the Lud Ludovico Center, and it, we'll come to it in a minute. Here's now in Stager 95, was it? Or whatever Stager it was. Stager 68, which was an abbreviation of State Jail. Yeah. Now, I don't know where he got this from. That was a, must have been a stock bit of footage because they never allow you to shoot in British jails or shoot the you know, entrances and exits because they don't want escapes. But this was a brilliant piece. I loved this. And now when I did this, Stanley said to me, well, Malk, what are you going to do? I mean, uh, you know, I can't shoot this. I went, what do you mean? Well, he goes, well, you know, this white line, I mean, you know, it, this is boring. And I said, Stanley, we've just come off a big scene. You have to give the audience time to kind of regroup. And um, I have to, sh you know, pretend that I'm now completely following the rules, you know. And I'm now Mr. Humility. And he went, well, let's shoot it, let me see. Anyway, I never heard another word about it. Michael Bates, brilliant performance. He was a, a fantastic actor, wasn't mm. he? I mean, someone that you love seeing. He is the epitome of a Joe Orton kind of actor. You know, heightened reality and always real and always interesting and always sort of over the top, but you believe it. Uh, he would have been about 49 here, even though you could say that he looks a bit mm -hmm. older. And they, like some of the other actors in this mm. film, went on to be a very big success on British TV. Oh, yeah. In the series It Ain't Half Hot Mum. Now, of mm. course, uh, in a moment, he will get to know you very well. He will indeed, yes. Now, tell me, I have ah. to ask you this. Mm. I mean, uh, you know a scene like this is coming up. 
in the script mm. and you've got to, as it were, bend over for England. Mm. What do you think about, as an actor, when you have to do something that where you are literally going to be exposing your all, as it were? My anus, you mean? Uh, well, there's really, you know, listen, you are in, you know, in a state, you're acting, you are being searched in a jail. So basically it's really, uh, you know, they search hundreds of prisoners coming in. They look at a lot of assholes and um, I'm just one of them. So uh, I think it was more embarrassing actually for poor old Michael Bates than it was for me. However, I mean, it's brilliantly done because these cardboard boxes, that they're, you know, um, you see, I'm playing this fairly straight and uh, I think I just do one little touch with my hand. There's this little physical movement. It's very important, the physical movements, you know, just there. I know where is it? I think the last thing goes down, I just touch it, which shows a sort of defiance, but in a very subtle, gentle, uh, trying to get that penny out of my pocket. There it is. Little smile. Well, it's Down tragic. It goes. It's tragic, isn't it? The the list of pathetic items that you have: two yeah. ballpoint pens. He says yeah. one black, one red. You yeah. Know, a half bar of chocolate. That's you know. it. Yeah, yeah. It's but it's so all this bureaucracy, you know, which is beautiful. And um, it's really amazing that these boxes, of course, they hide one's genitals, but uh, I get the the old signature, of course. I made up the name Delage. Uh, it wasn't really, I don't think that's in the book. I don't, it isn't in the book, I know, because I made it up. And he goes, well, why Delage? And I went, you know, Alex, the large. <laughs> <laughs> it was a sort of joke, but um, he was, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, well, it yeah. seems, of course, a, a suitably self-aggrandizing name for the character. Yeah, who might of be course. accused of being a bit But you see the lights again, all one source lighting. That's all that's lighting the room are these bulbs. He's asking me whether um, I've had got any artificial limbs, I believe. <laughs> he is so formal, so matter-of-fact, you know, and it's wonderful, too. He, he has a lovely payoff, doesn't he, Brilliant. when you're doing your stage performance where a lot of reaction yeah. shots on Michael Bates as he sees the woman. Oh, yeah, and, the... and Stanley had him in. He wasn't supposed to be in that scene, but Stanley, thank God, put him in there because... Um, oh, his reactions are priceless. Priceless, yeah. So, of course, now, you know... The whole, all the kit comes off, and you think, oh, yeah, the brilliant little box hiding it. And, of course, um, you know, then he moves the damn box, <laughs> which is brilliant Stanley touch, really. It's a, it's a very... I, mean, I remember at the time people that. saying that this was, uh, you know, um, the shot where you bend over, Michael Bates comes down to have a look, you know. That, that was one of the cited scenes, you know, in the controversy at the time of its release, that this was the kind of thing that people shouldn't be watching. It's, you it's know. just bullshit. I mean, as if this doesn't happen in jail. They have, they, you do this at customs now. I recommended Godfrey Quigley for this part <laughs> because I was with him at Stratford and he was the greatest drinker, gambler I ever worked with and he was one of the most fun people I ever met. Uh, he was a lovely actor, terrific, um, fire and brimstone priest. He was great. I cast quite a lot of this film. Actually, yeah, it sounds like it. You know, uh, mm. well, I mean, you obviously had a good a good idea of who some mm. of these great actors were. You know? And you know, the thing was, they all went on to be in Barry Lyndon. Most of them. I think at least, if I remember rightly, six or seven yeah. of these actors are in Barry Lyndon. Look at this guy. He was yeah. a 
a big stuntman. He was like, I think he was, this guy, I believe, was a real con man. And he'd been inside for something, GBH or something. The guy blowing kisses? Yeah, yeah, he was a definite con. Mm. The rhythm of the film really changes here too, mm -hmm. doesn't it? It goes from the mayhem of the first 40, 45 yeah. minutes to um, now a much more... The dialogue scenes get longer. Yeah. Uh, uh, the, the whole rhythm and pace of the mm -hmm. film changes. Yeah. But you've got the lighting of this. I mean, it's staggering how beautiful it is, really. I found great difficulty uh, learning chunks of the Bible. This is by... Um, I think I did 20 takes because I couldn't remember these bloody quotes. Oh, that is, this is the very first image he told Stanley ever gave me of Alex. He said, I see Jesus, you know, carrying the cross and, you know, then the centurion whipping him and he go into his face and it's, it's Alex. <laughs> and so that was the very first time. When sort of, as it were, dramatizations of what you, Alex, might be thinking about in terms of how much you enjoy toll-chocking people and everything. Right. The images um, are interesting, aren't they? Because they seem to be almost drawn from like 1950s movies about biblical dramas and uh, and things like that. They seem well, this very is Spartacus, arcane. isn't it? Look at this. It, it, it's as if it would be drawn from someone who'd watched a lot of movies. Yeah. Was that ever discussed? Or do you? No. No. I mean, this was done really on the cheap, you know, it's like a car chariot turned over, the, you know, it's in the middle of a field. And getting onto the bed with their wives. Oh, there's a funny story about this. You want me to tell this story? The handmaidens. Stanley invited me over to go over to the house to see these tapes of these girls that were doing a bit of Shakespeare. And the camera zoomed in to their breasts as they were saying, the quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth like a gentle rain from heaven. Boom, right into their tits, you know. He would then take a still of these. And, you know, then the next day he called me in and said, Malcolm, um, I've got the photographs back of, of all the, you know, the breasts. And I want you to come and choose and we'll choose together. And so he had all these black and white stills of breasts, you know. And I'd say, ooh, this... This set looks rather nice. And he'd go, well, I'm, I'm picking the... I'd say, yeah, yeah, very good choice. And how about that one? He goes, no, no, my turn. I'll have that one. And so then I'd say to him, and, uh, yeah, who, who actually, who are they? Who are the girls? And he looked at them, he turned it over, and he goes, oh, geez. Uh, and he goes, uh, Margaret, can you come in here? She comes in. He goes, who, 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 what's the name of the girl? She goes, Stanley, I don't know. You took the stills. He goes, oh, my God, I don't know. I have no idea. So, of course, that went out of the window, you know. For once, he got a little excited, and of course, he was very into files and being neat and cross-referencing and all the rest of it. And this is the one time it totally let him down, and it, I, it made me roar with laughter. When you see the amount of breasts in a movie today, that as you as we see in this movie, it seems mm. unusual because, as you know, there isn't the casual nudity anymore that we used to sort of take for granted in the early seventies. Yeah. Could this have been construed as gratuitous or not? I don't think so. You know, handmaidens. That's his fantasy is being, you know, he's reading the Bible. You think he's, you know, reading about the suffering of Christ. And what's he, re what's he thinking? He's thinking of great breasts on handmaidens and then feeding him grapes. I mean, it's a brilliant piece of satirical filmmaking, isn't it? It's, uh, I mean, it's just showing you that he's working the system. And, um, you know, he's, it's all nonsense, of course, you know. And, this is Alex being all um, goody-good, and quite revolting it is too, but um, 
fun, fun to play. And, you know, this is the other side of the character. Well, of course, he keeps his interest alive, as it were, in his other pursuits, you know, all the while, uh, you know, thinking about reclamation. And he wants to be the person, doesn't he, chosen uh, to be uh, experimented on with the Ludovico technique? Of course, because he wants out. He's a young man who's got a life sentence, and he wants out, and he hears of this, the rumors about this treatment um, that can get him out. And, of course, he doesn't realize the consequences, and this is really the heart of the film, and this is what the film is about. The film is about freedom of choice. And freedom of choice being we are free to be, to live a good life, a righteous life, or to be a, an immoral life. I mean, it's, but that's our choice. It's not up to the state to choose for us. I mean, you may say, well, look at, uh, you know, the, how much of the population are in our prisons. You know, it's staggering. But the point is, you know, you get into a communist system or a fascist system um, if, if, you know, you, you take away freedom of people to choose. And, and this is really what the whole crux of this film is about. It's not about the violence, the drugs, the this, the that, and the other. That's the bottom line. And I think that's what uh, Burgess was trying to say. And he made it brilliant. The brilliance of it is, is that he uses an immoral character to say this, so that we really, you know, we want to put him away for life, and yet there is a sympathy for him somehow because of what I said earlier. He loves life, and you love to see a kind of a con man, a trickster, you know, in a way, which is what he is. Amen. This was shot at the old Arsenal, by the way. Mm. Arsenal, where the barracks, Arsenal, that's where it comes from, not the football team. Uh, there again, the one source lights, brilliant. Look at that. I mean, that's all that's lighting that. Stanley was always brilliant with corridors. He loved looking at things from a distance like that, didn't he? Yeah, but he? look how beautiful that shot is. I mean, that's just an amazing shot, and it's like a still. Of course, and here you have the Minister of the Inferior, or the Interior, whichever way you want to put it. Brilliantly played by Anthony Sharp. He's a wonderful actor. Just had that right, enough sort of pomposity about him. Sort of like a Tory cabinet minister. Yes, which is I look at all the stuff on the walls and, of course, Beethoven. I think there's a Liverpool... Uh, no, maybe not. <laughs> I thought you'd get Liverpool in there somewhere. Yeah, you thought I'd get it in, yeah. A few naked girls, but Che Guevara, no. Beethoven. Big. Which is, of course, uh, one of the things that we we assume that Anthony Sharp, in his capacity as the man who will be selecting the person right. for the Ludovico technique, will think that here's a young lad. That's why Stanley had him pick up the photograph. Of it, yes. You know, when we talk about the music for this film, obviously Beethoven resonates very mm. significantly because that's what he wants. But as you know, Stanley had in 2001 kind of at that time very unusually used a selection of pre-existing classical pieces to score the film. And here, because he had the Beethoven, he also used the same technique but asked American composer Wendy Carlos, mm -hmm. who had had a huge success a couple of years earlier with Switzerland Switch Bach, Bach. Mm -hmm. in creating a kind of a new synthesized mm -hmm. electronic world of classical music. Well, you know, that was um, 
an incredible um, stroke of luck or genius asking Wendy Carlos because uh, it just gives it a futuristic sort of tinge to it and it makes it sort of absolutely quite amazing and Stanley uses it very sparingly actually it's not not in the film a lot but where it is it really kicks it into high gear um, I went to the studio in uh, New York afterwards and she was very disappointed that more he wrote a hell of a lot more music and um, which I think he put out in, on an album later on but it, it was extraordinary music that he wrote for him but I think that actually Stanley you know he, he's very very clever at using sound and, and all that and the music and he probably just thought that that was enough and just it was just strange enough to you know, and he used it a lot in the Ludovico Center, which is coming up. Yes, and in fact, the piece uh, we'll say when we get there was Time Steps, which I believe was the piece of music Wendy Carlos had written cold, mm-hmm. sent to Stanley as a demonstration, as, as an example of the kind of musical style that he could use in the film. I didn't know that. Uh, How did that go? <laughs> that's a very hard piece to sing, but it's the piece that uh, is being played when you are being strapped into oh, your oh, lid yeah. oh, yeah, the first yeah, yeah. time. Oh, no, that's weird. That's all that sort yes, of... Exactly. But what's great is, of course, the Beethoven, that, which... Da-da, 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 yes. da-da, ch, da, the, the, the choral da-da. movement of the ninth the is, is fantastic. But the way she was just alters it, that yes. Carlos alters it. And to flash back to the Corova Milk Bar, the, the mm. piece of music used there, which will recur a number of times in the film, yeah. is Freude. the funeral for Queen Mary by Henry Purcell. That's right. Which is given such a, a weird treatment. Yeah, brilliant. That has become the... He made me learn the whole damn thing. I just remember, Freude schöner guter Funken, Tochter. Aus Elysium. Oh, it's good that you can remember that after yeah. all these years. Oh, yeah. But the music, I think, you know, in total, cumulatively, is one of the finest scores of the day. And I think it, it also, it was so it influential mm. in what was to come musically in fact. I agree. And Warner's records were very excited because I think it was the biggest selling records of its day, which is pretty remarkable. I, th- I think it would be fair to say at this point that Warner's at the time was a very progressive studio. Making the best movies. They were making the best movies, unquestionably. I made three of my very best movies with them, which was Clockwork Orange first, then Oh Lucky Man, which um, I think they just went on trust because of the director and myself, Lindsay Anderson, who'd done If. And then I made a Nick Meyer film a little later on called Time After Time, which I'm very proud of. I think it's a wonderful film. I think those three films are very different and wonderful in their own right but probably this is the crown jewel this was a period where warners were incredibly artist friendly and they allowed progressive movies like this to be made that Mm -hmm. other people would have balked at Uh, earlier attempts to make a clockwork orange for example had found it because the material was very sensitive i think the thing was john Kelly knew that stanley kubrick of course was a genius and that the best way to treat Stanley Kubrick was to leave him alone, just to give him the money and say, here's your delivery date, and don't put too much profanity or nudity or whatever the clauses were in the contract. Um, But Stanley, you know, was a great showman. He knew and had a very good nose for knowing what was popular, and there are many instances here where he went the softer route and, and I used to say to him why in the Ludovico thing why do you have all these sort of dive bombing stukas I mean that's not scary 
He goes, Malcolm, you, d you don't want to scare the audience too much. You know, you, you've got to be careful what you show and what you don't show. This is the first day's work, by the way. Morning, Charlie. Good morning, Doctor. This was my first scene. Right at the very beginning. I think I looked 20 years younger, almost. And, and this is at Brunel University, is that Yes, it is, to? absolutely. Just outside London, or just in London, actually. And this is um, Madge Ryan. Now, in a few minutes, you'll meet Dr. Brodsky, and we'll begin your treatment. So, uh, Stanley's idea was that she was actually really going to give me a shot on camera. And I saw this poor actress in the hallway when I was shooting another scene, practicing on an orange. And I thought, oh, my God. I said to Stanley, does, does she know what she's doing? I mean, oh, yeah, yeah, she knows. Look, I look, I look so much younger. It's amazing. And um, Lindsay Anderson had given me the key to the part in that he'd said to me when he read the script for me, because I asked him, he said, Malcolm, you um, play Alex as if well, there's a great shot of you in If when you open the doors of the gymnasium to be beaten. There's a close-up of you and you smile. That's how you play this part. So this, that smile got me through this day. And you'll see, she gives me a shot. And actually, she did give me an actual shot on screen. And you saw it go into my ass. Um, but of course, um, you know, it, it, it caused a huge um, bulbous thing on my ass. And I leaped out of bed in such pain that they forgot about all that. Yes. Now, this is where Time Steps is playing, and this looks pretty unpleasant, what's happening to you. Yeah, this is really not very pleasant, because these lid locks, they use them in delicate eye operations, and um, pretty hard to watch for me even now, but at least my eyes are anesthetized, so I can't really feel anything. But this doctor who's doing, putting them in, who is in the scene, was a very nice doctor from Moorfield's Eye Hospital, and uh, he assured me everything was fine and that... You know, as long as he got these artificial tears into my eyes, uh, they wouldn't dry up and I wouldn't be blind. Uh, but you'd have to get them in every 15 seconds. When you say anesthetized, you mean that you'd taken, you'd taken anesthetic on your A little eyelids. drops. You'd put little drops in that knock out the eyes completely. And the way he would check it was he got his handkerchief and said, can you feel this? Ow! Yes. Oh, OK, we're not quite ready. And what sort of length of time would you sit for a... T I mean, how no, long no, would you sit No, no, we shot this on two cameras... Ten minutes, that's it. Total, ten minutes. Big close-up. Then he, of course, asked for um, a pack shot, huge close-up of my eyes. And you can see I've aged because I know what's coming. And I said, uh, eventually I had to say that I'd do it. Of course, you know, what am I going to do? Say no. Um, but I did it as a last shot in the film at the very, very end. We all went back to Brunwell University and we did it again. So that, You see, this is all fakey. You know, I mean, I know it's it's sort of tame stuff, really, and, and very fakey. You know, it has a definite. But now, of course, he's beginning to feel sick and concentrating on the next film. <laughs> Quite extraordinary and, and ludicrous sort of rapes. I mean, you know. Well, again, the images that he's sort of being shown is kind of like bad movie images. Yeah, bad know? movie, which is exactly, I guess, what he wanted. You know, and. Uh, this was the sort of master shot with them all at the back. Leering and smacking, and then going into it. You know, I was in a straight jacket and then strapped into this thing. I mean, I could not move. 
and actually it was really uncomfortable after a while. It was really horrific. When they got those things on, I said, you know, Stan, we have to go because I can't take that. You're supposed to be lying flat on your back with these things and not watching movies. And you can see, you know, on this shot, I'm looking at the screen, looking up, my eyes moving and it's passing over the metal and my cornea is getting scratched. And uh, did you? Did you? I mean, did you experience kind of you know post discomfort, as it were? Discomfort. I had to have a shot of um, morphine. I mean, for a while after the. It was no, done. the eye uh, luckily heals in uh, you know twelve hours. It was by the next day. It was just it felt like I had sand in my eyes, but at least I didn't have the pain of a scratched cornea. And I don't, people that wear contact lenses, you know, they they sometimes get scratch corneas and I tell you there is nothing as bad as that I've never felt pain like that it's horrendous this was also the first day morning and afternoon what was the rhyme and reason behind the way the order in which things were shot oh I think they just had you know this um, it's by location this location we shoot everything in this location and then so we don't move trucks and so you shoot everything there and then you move and you shoot everything. So here, it's very interesting because he used, um, it was amazing because there's a close-up here that I actually shot in the dark. This close-up of Madge against the light was shot with a lens from 2001 and outside it was pitch black. Now look at that. You couldn't believe it. It was such an amazing lens. So Stanley and uh, was quite amazing, really, that the way he, you know, used... He didn't use much of it in this film, but stuff from 2001, of course, crept in. Here's your favourite piece of music. Yeah, brilliant piece given, of music. Given the Wendy Carlos treatment at this point. Yeah, it's absolutely genius. And brilliant. this is where you're going to realise that, uh, unfortunately, the soundtrack of the film is also going to be corrupted for you, like the yeah. visuals. But which is such a great idea, isn't it? It's such a brilliant twist of fate. Um, and a punishment that's sort of in some way bigger than the crime. You know, that's yes. what it makes you feel as an audience member, that somehow you're being too yeah. punished, but you've killed somebody. I mean, you're a murderer. Let's face it, yeah. yeah, really, you know. You know, we had to go through... Stanley used to invite me up. He said, I've got these, you know, I've got these films that we're going to see... Uh, um, about concentration camps that I'm going to use. We had to sit through hours of the most punishing stuff that I don't think anyone had ever seen. Mm. They were from the archives in the British Museum and, and stuff like that. And Oh, my God, just horrendous stuff. I said, I, you know, I'd say to Stanley, I don't think I want to come out to your house to see any more movies, Stanley. You're making me sick. Who was Dr. Brodsky, the, uh, the actor? Had you I can't remember him his name, but I did meet his wife uh, Years later, in, uh, look, this is the last shot, mm. the end of the film. Look at how much aged, because I know, I know the pain is to come. And sure enough, it came. So that was shot, ooh, I guess, um, four or five months later. Yes, you'd met his wife later when you were making yes, a film I, I in met, Russia. Yes, I, I was making a film in Russia, in Moscow, called Assassin of the Tsar, wonderful film. And there was a lady on it who was this dialogue coach, and she came up to me and said, oh, my husband played Dr. Brodsky. And I went, my God, I remember him very well. He's very, very good. And he's actually an acting teacher, or he was. Still in England, or what we don't I know? I don't know. I don't know. But I do know that he arrived. He had quite a long speech. And uh, he arrived on the set for the first morning. He'd never met Stanley, because he'd, you know, done a tape 
for Jimmy Liggett. And he had a, a coffee in one hand, his overcoat and his briefcase in the other. Stanley came up to him and said, Hi, I'm Stanley Kubrick. Do you know the scene? He said, Oh, yes, Mr. Kubrick, yes. He said, Well, Stanley got his watch. He looked at his watch, like the uh, stopwatch on his thing, and he goes, Right, OK, go. <laughs> I was standing there and I said, Stan, let the poor man have his coffee. <laughs> but he was like that. He thought actors were like sort of machines, you know. Like a, like a lens, in fact. But he, he never treated me that way. I must say, looking at the performance and the work I did with Stanley, is, I couldn't have done it if I didn't have an immense sort of regard for him and a love for him. I mean, I... You know, this we went down, walked this plank together, and uh, it was such an exciting style to find. Tell us about your uh, your first meeting with him. Did you have any preconceived ideas at all? Not really. I just knew. You know, first I thought it was Stanley Kramer, so <laughs> that was quite wrong. But I called my friend Lindsay Anderson, who said, "Oh, good God, Malcolm, he's one of the great directors." I mean. And then he took me to see 2001, which I thought was incredible. Of course, it's an incredible film. And of its day, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's one of the great masterpieces. And I went to see him. He was a very short man with a beard, thinning hair. He was, I think, about 47, 48 when I met him. And incredible intelligence, dark, dark dark eyes, uh, very intelligent eyes, and um, no apparent sense of humor. But I could really get him going. I could really get Stan going, but it would, it would have to be so black. But when he went, he, he usually went big. He was such a great audience for me, because out of my periphery vision in a scene, I could see him sometimes stuffing his handkerchief in his mouth. He was laughing so hard that tears were rolling down his cheeks. And, you know, from your director, that's a hell of an encouragement. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful thing. And he appreciated it. He loved the humor. You know, I mean, I'd pull his leg all the time. And I'd ask him, what do you want? He'd go, gee, Mark, I don't know. That's why I hired you. And I went, oh, excuse me. I thought you were the director. Anyone got a call sheet? Oh, look at this, Stan. S. Kubrick, director. How about a bit of direction? You know, I mean, tease him all the time. And... Um, but that was a good thing, I think, because, you know, because everybody treated him like he was a god. I mean, I couldn't do that because I had to work with him. I had to work with him on the same level because you can't do your, your best work if you're feeling you're working with someone who's infinitely more intelligent, brighter, more brilliant than you are because otherwise you're going to be intimidated. And that is not in my canon. I don't have that. So that was the way I dealt with it was through humor, I guess. This is another actor called John Clyde. Yes. And I remember Stanley asking him, he said, you've got to really stamp on him. I mean, and I was stupid enough. I should have said, well, then I need a pad. And I didn't. And of course, he put his, he put his heel through my rib cage. I had a, a blood clot under my rib. And of course, I went for an x-ray and it didn't show up. And the next day, I'd, I really, I literally, practically fainted. Uh, we went to do the prison sequence the next, and I couldn't work. This was a, a physically bruising uh, experience, this movie, wasn't it? It was, really, yeah. It's a very physical part, you know. It doesn't look it, really, but it really is. The whole setup of this scene, I think, is extremely funny because it's theatre. 
course. Everyone is at a show. You yeah, know. yeah, exactly. And he's the poor dupe who, uh, you know, he thinks he's got one over on any, everybody. And, of course, he has and he hasn't. And, and that's the beauty of it. And uh, it's right here. Ooh, ah, that's the one oh. that did it. There's uh, Michael Bates. Yeah, sure. Lick my boots. I stuck up my yazik a yard and a half. Licked his Vosny Grazny, Grazny boots. Oh, my brothers. And uh, <laughs> I kept saying to Melina, are those new? I'm not licking these things, Stanley, if they've been walked on. <laughs> she said, no, they, we um, put antiseptic on them. De I went, I'm not licking Dettol off this thing, which is an antiseptic in England. It's horrible stuff. I love the way he takes his bows at the end, you know, yes. because he's just given a great uh, performance. Yeah. Well, I taught um, the other one, uh, Virginia Weatherall, how to bow with this flourish. Uh, I'd seen actors do that at the Royal Shakespeare Company, you know. And here is the aforementioned Virginia Weatherall. Yes, it's kind of fun and nice to burp, just... <coughs> and this whole thing, it's so sort of silent screen stuff, isn't it? It's, uh, I know my brothers. And the piece of music, of course, playing here again is the is a repeat of the yeah. funeral for Queen Mary, which is so it's marvelous beautiful. in the context. Oh, yes. Beautiful. Now, Virginia Wetherill, um, she was married to the actor Ralph Bates, who will be familiar to fans from all of the yes. Hammer films that he starred in. Yes, a, a wonderful actor. And uh, Virginia has still has an antique shop. She sells antique uh, clothes in London, and I see her from time to time. I always make it a point to go in and say hello. She looks quite different now, but hey, don't we all? It's quite a long time ago. You don't uh, get together with her, though, to reenact the scene? No, no. And Michael Bates, these reaction shots of yeah, him are great. Yeah, I know, With the light like it was, the light of heavenly grace. That's a great shot, isn't it? Jeez. That always reminds me of 2001 for some reason, and I don't know why. <laughs> I mean, it was, it's sort of rather funny that she wears her knickers, though. You know, that we had to, that's one thing. Oh, gee, we don't want to get an ex, you know, so. Yeah, still did anyway. I was cast in this part because I could burp on cue. Which is a skill. It is a skill. I'm very proud of it and uh, used it in, in numerous performances. I've passed it on to my son, who can also do it. When the film was released and it, and it did get an X, it was, of course, given an X in England because that was our rating system at the time. In America, it got an X despite... Uh, Only some... for uh, the first immediate release. Then Stanley, yes. I think, trimmed yes. 20 seconds out of... I, I can't remember what of. It was something totally innocuous. May have been even the prison sequence. And uh, then, then it went out as, um, you know, an R or whatever. And by that time, of course, it had been already nominated for uh, several Academy Awards, and uh, and he was it able to... didn't win one, I don't think. Didn't win one, but he was able to showman-like reissue the film uh, yeah. in its new R-rated version, yeah. which was really no different, as you just said, to the no, other No, 20 version. seconds, I mean, nothing. He wouldn't even know it. And it became, you know... Look at the lighting here. Look at that. How brilliant is that? That's a still photograph. I mean, he, you can see every every shot is a still, really. It, it, it's amazing that Stanley used his knowledge of photography from a young age, a 16-year-old, even younger. 16 was when he had that very famous photograph about the war, declaration of war, you know, from on a news vendor's thing. 
Well, just recently, a rather lovely collection of photographs that he took, I believe it was for Look magazine. Well, that's what it was for, uh, it, yeah. It, um, has... It's a beautiful book, and yes. uh, yeah, it's fabulous. And you see a lot of these setups, you know, I can see it. It's so Stanley. Well, he had a very singular style, didn't he? Hmm. He did, and I think if you see um, the first 45 minutes of Full Metal Jacket, is almost shot to shot, um, Clockwork Orange. It's, I see it. so many setups and um, from Clockwork. I think it's like the old joke where they say that uh, great artists always tell the same story over and over again. Mm -hmm. I think what Stanley did was he he told the, told a different story in a similar fashion yeah. over and over again, and that's what you lock on to as an admirer of his work. Yeah, that style, yeah. which is so mesmerizing. He's got incredible style. He wasn't so much interested in the human condition as you know the human emotion, but it was more satirical. See, this is wonderful here really this is a great scene it is oh me coming through that door was the only piece of direction he really gave me when i came through the door first he said mouth no uh you know no no what are you thinking i said well i'm just coming in he goes no 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 now milena cananero is like you know four foot eleven or something or five foot one or whatever tiny little bird-like figure he said imagine milena making love to dave prowse who's this mr universe as you come through the door. And of course, I had this twinkle in my eye and a big laugh, a big smile, and he went, that's it! And that's how that's, he shot that. So that was a great piece of direction. And I want to just, I have to just mention the music one more time, because as you come through that door, mm -hmm. a piece of music is playing called I Want to Marry a Lighthouse Keeper, yeah. written and performed by Erica Eigen, which apparently Stanley had heard on the radio. No. Uh, and thought was something they would want to put in this film. It's, it, that was her It's one of the, the funniest... Song. I want to marry a lighthouse keeper and keep him company. Yes. Yeah, absolutely horrendous I'm so, I'm so glad you know all the music. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, of course. And that uh, was so bizarrely appropriate. I mean, what a crazy yeah. thing to be playing uh, as, as you come in. This is so great. I had to really set this up, you know, uh, set this scene up, really, you know, go big on it here. I'm so happy to be home and, uh, and then... There's a strange fella. There's a strange fella sitting on the sofa. Sitting on the sofa. Yeah. That was um, Clive Francis. Clive Francis, one, wonderful actor. And he went on to be a big star in yes. theatre and still is, isn't he, in England, I think. Yes, again, like James Marcus, you know, a big yeah. television career. Uh, and he's so mean to you here. And this is the scene, the pivotal mm. scene, where the audience, despite themselves, Start. can't help the fact that you really Start. begin to yeah. feel sorry for Alex now. And this is where I broke down and blubbed. And I was really crying. And my nose started running and Stanley goes, well, I, I can't use it because your nose ran. It's all I looked it's disgusting. I said, well, I can't help it. I was blubbing <laughs> to do it again. So you're back. Quite a hideous apartment of course yes beautifully hideous you know it's i was just thinking of poor clive francis's outfit there and his oh, hairstyle of course which is uh, yeah. pure 1971. yeah melena came up with this blue suit for me and um sort of quite innocuous kind of suit and blue tie of course blue blue shirt so now, this is the apartment that you said was 15 floors up yeah in thamesmead a real place decorated 
Yeah. I mean, specifically for the our, film. Our, um, blue yeah, the set red. designers did this, and, um, you know, we were up there for like two or three weeks, I think, doing all these scenes. I love Sheila Rayner. She was in her 60s then. Oh, you know? God. I mean, she, she was wearing she her really? red go-go boots and, uh, yeah. And uh, Philip Stone must have been in his 40s, I guess. It's good that I had this burp because this is, you know, it was great to show the, you know, nausea and it was perfect, perfect. Um, and Stanley, of course, every time I do it, would laugh his head off, you know, he thought it was so uncouth that it was funny. Wallpaper is like light bulbs or something, isn't it? <laughs> I know, it's totally hideous. And this is Hearts and Flowers time. I remember as a teenager seeing this film when it was first released, thinking, how come they didn't know he was coming home, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why wouldn't they get his room ready for him? He met with, like, an accident. But it's the heartlessness of family, isn't it? It's, um, times have changed, son. We have a lodger now, Joe. Joe, Joe the lodger. And Philip Stone, he has a northern accent, Wonderful. He? he? has a very pronounced northern accent. Yeah, I know. I've suffered, I've suffered. And oh, how I've suffered. <laughs> you know, I'm sort of laughing inside. I love the word, uh, he says he's sitting on the sofa, munchy-wunching, lomtics of toast. Now, you had actually brought some of your own words, like... Uh, yeah, it, yeah, well, you couldn't help it, you know, I was... You know, saying eggy wegs and steaky wake. <laughs> sort of fun. The NADSAT was great. And Burgess was very, I said, you didn't mind it. I even, oh, no, that's the whole, no, no, add to it, do whatever, you know, please. I love that um, uh, the NADSAT word for head is Gulliver, you know, yeah. homaging Jonathan Swift. Of course. Yeah. Uh, right, pain in the Gulliver, sir. Real horror show. It's amazing how many of those words are now in the language, you know. Well, now there's a group called Heaven, Heavenly Seventeen. That uh, was one of the made-up made groups, you know. Yes. I mean, people use that word now, ultra-violence, as if, as oh, if yeah. that's a word. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Well, it is a word. I mean, yeah. it's past now. What is it? Uh, I mean, this is a, a sort of a sidebar thought, but, you know, you act in a film... No one knows how a film is going to turn out or what mm. the response is going to be, hit or otherwise. But suddenly you're in a film that 35 years later is literally a part of the cultural iconography. Is, is that weird or, or how do you react to that? Ah, I, I really, you know, I think you, you just go on as normal. What, what can you do? I mean, most of the films you do have forgotten the minute they're made. So when you get one or two or three in your lifetime that actually stand up and that are works of art, um, it's an amazing feeling. I mean, uh, you know, I used to resent Clockwork Orange because that's all people would want to talk about. And, you know, I'd, you know I've done over 100 films and um, I used to really hate it. But it's, as time has worn on, I, of course, I've realized that... Um, they want to talk about it because it is a great film. And, um, you know, uh, it was a, one of those parts that come once in a lifetime for an actor. It was one of the greatest parts, you know, ever to play. 
in front of a camera. You know, it has everything. And, you know, you go through A to Z in emotion and, you know, displaying everything, the physical movement, the comedy, the, you know, everything, everything that you, the whole canon, everything you had, uh, even singing rather badly, I know, but the whole point was that it was supposed to be a little off-key. Um, it wasn't supposed to be too good, you know, and um, it does go down in history, I suppose, as, you know, being one of the great films and one of the great parts, and uh, I'm just so lucky that I was the one chosen to do it. And But as I said, I've said before, when I was chosen, I was ready, and I knew... Um, when I read the book, especially on, I read it three times before I called Stanley back to say whether, you know, give my answer, I suppose. Um, and uh, I read it the first time, I couldn't understand it. The second time, I thought, wow, this is some book. And on the third reading, I thought, uh uh, this is some part. Wow, this could be. And I just found it, uh, I, I had to find something within me that was uh, new for me as an actor, and a kind of acting that I'd never done before in a sort of Orton-esque kind of reality that, it, it, you know, it's not realistic, but it's real. It's heightened satirical comedy, really, um, but always real and always touching in a way that, um, you know, without, without ever um, kowtowing to likability to an audience, uh, that kiss of death, that really, you know, um, you either love him or you hate him, uh, that's up to the audience, really. It, it's, but, but um, you know, and, and never to m make a false move to, to have the audience like you. And that's a very important element of this because it's a very fine line, you know. You have to be um, prepared to be hated, and that's fine. That's fine, too. And like everything, I suppose, like, like all art, particularly art like A Clockwork Orange, which becomes so much a part of the public consciousness over a period of decades, that it has to breathe, doesn't it? That your response to it when you did it is obviously going to be very different to your response to it 30 years yeah, later. Yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. I mean, I was just fed up because I'd done another film after this, which was just as, um, it was very different, but in its own way, just as magical, called Oh Lucky Man, and that was completely swamped by this, and, and no, nobody, you know, really wanted to talk about anything else. And, um, and that really sort of, you know, pissed me off somewhat and uh, felt very disappointed. Uh, mainly for Lindsay Anderson, actually, who, you know, was a great friend and, and, and if you like, a mentor to me and uh, was an extraordinary man, you know. Um, and Stanley, I really, after I'd done the, finished the film with Stanley, I really never saw him again. I mean, a few times, yes, and talked on the phone, yes. I mean, I remember calling him once to tease him because I knew that he was doing Barry Lyndon. So I called him up and told me, I told him that... Um, this is before it actually happened. Fellini had offered me this film called Casanova. And of course he freaked on the phone because he was going into pre-production on this thing. And it was very close to Barry Lynn. So he said, 
Oh, gee, Malk, um, would you mind just, if I send a driver, would you um, let me just read the script? I'll have it back to you within two hours. And I went, absolutely not, Stanley. Would you like me to give Clockwork Orange to some other, you know, competing director? I wouldn't do it. <laughs> this is Stanley, by the way, operating this. Now you'll see there's a lot of sky. <laughs> Stan, get the damn camera down. That's what they call headroom. Yeah, it? yeah. Um, I he, always used to tease him about his operating, which I thought was pretty bad, but actually really wasn't. Um, and he used to love it, you know. He loved it. He was trudging along behind us in his boots. This is a lot of dialogue to get out, by the way. Yeah, there's a whole exposition here, isn't there? You're, you're explaining yeah. everything that's happened. Oh, God, you're apologizing for the past. You're basically saying, yeah. let's bygones be bygones. Right. And, and in the meantime... And you know what? We lost this, we lost this location because it was on some lord's estate. And I just looked at Stanley and I went, no way. Get the car. I'm, I drove up to the manor house to have tea with his lordship. And I said, listen, one more day, we'll be out of here. Do you mind? Oh, no, dear boy. Oh, dear boy. No, no. Please, no, go ahead. Now, you are under this water for a long time. I know, big lungs. Big lungs. See the cut right there? That was the cut where um, I put the pipe, uh, the mouthpiece with it connected to the oxygen tank. Now, that was a, a, you know, it was a freezing day, so that was quite cold, that water was, you know, because you couldn't have hot water because it would steam. And what's the brown muck in it? Bovril. <laughs> which is a beef extract. Hideous stuff that we used to put... Oh, there's a bit of steam coming out, but I think that's more from my jacket. Uh, I mean, I, all I could... I was like being in a netherworld under there and sort of like half drowning and being beaten on the back. It was so weird. And me never really knowing when to get up, but I said to Warren, pull me up when I'm supposed to talk. He went, okay, I'll get hold of you. Don't worry, then to get the cuffs off. Look at him feigning. Now, okay. I mean, it seems like an eternity. It's well yeah. over a minute. Isn't oh, it? It's God, more like yeah, a minute yeah. and a half, I think, yeah. of, of that shot. I mean, it's a brilliant shot, really. But somebody said, it's not that brilliant because it takes you out of the scene because you're wondering how the hell he did it. But that's brilliant drama, isn't it? That's what Brecht was all about. Well, you worry for, you worry for Alex. Yeah, Again, yeah. you worry for him. And, yeah. uh, of course, now after Eyes Wide Shut... Um, it's very interesting to me that the entire second half of Clockwork Orange is, like Eyes Wide Shut, the character experiencing the same things, meeting the same people but in reverse, going the opposite way. He goes mm -hmm. one way in the first one half and then back the same way in the opposite direction. And so here he is, home again. And it was home I came to with my brothers. Now, we didn't talk about Patrick McGee earlier, but he uh, was a character, is it was he a, not? It was a dream. I'd worked with Patrick McGee in a very small way because Patrick was a star actor at the Royal Shakespeare Company when I was playing small parts and sort of basically walking on and carrying a spear. And I was in a production of Puntilla that it's called, it's a Breck play called Puntilla and his servant Matty. And he had played Matty, the servant. And um, he hated doing it so much that. Um, it was quite hilarious, actually, because I used to hear him muttering on the stage about this bloody play that he hated and didn't think the audience could hear him, but I think they could hear every word. But um, he was a wonderful actor. You know, he came up to me and he go, Jesus, Malcolm, is there any Guinness on this set? 
Jesus Christ, I've never been on a set where there's no Guinness, there's nothing to drink. I mean, what's with this Kubrick? Is he teetotal? <laughs> I say, I think he's a bit scared of all that kind of stuff. This guy, yes, Dave Prowse, became, of course, um, Darth Vader. Darth Vader and, um, yeah, Star Wars. And um, he was uh, Mr. Universe, you know. And the poor guy, you know, he had to carry me and then he had to carry the guy in the wheelchair. And, of course, you know, he had a terrible sh shoulder strain. We couldn't work for two days because Dave, you know, I mean, but Stanley had him standing there while he lit for days on end, you know. The poor guy. I mean, he really got a workout. Yes, Dave Prowse, who could not have imagined that just a few years in his future, wow. you know, his life would change. Yeah. But the thing is, nobody knows what he looks like. No. It sort of sounds like, actually, because it doesn't he have a, he oh, has yeah. a light Somerset accent. I yes, he does. He's West Country. You can hear it here. Helpless like a babe in arms. He's West Country. That's right. That's very interesting. I always wonder, too, that his name, Julian, whether he might be named after Julian Senior, who was Stanley's close friend. Yeah, no, I don't London. think so. They, they were close on this, but not, I don't think, as close as they were to become. Who uh, Julian Senior memorably said that uh, in his capacity as a Warner's executive that uh, he would happily take one movie from Stanley every seven years over everyone else's one every year. You know. Yeah. Now, Patrick McGee gives you the impression that he is really out of his mind in this scene, doesn't he? At one yeah. point, you jump out of your skin at one of his line readings. Try the wine. <laughs> Food, all right. I mean, he kept saying to me, do you think I'm overdoing it? I feel like I'm taking a dump. <laughs> I said, look, you know, he goes, is this, does this Kubrick know what he's doing? He'd say to me. Uh, we did improvise a lot of this stuff, actually. I mean, it needed this kind of crazed performance. You know, it needed the film needed it at this time in where it comes. It 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 desperately needed Patrick McGee at this time. Yes, it really needed Patrick McGee to be so over the top at this point, didn't it? Well, it just needed um, a burst of energy because um, you know the worst thing that can happen in movies is for actors to take the energy of people they're playing a scene with and um, you know here I've got to be on the defensive low-key you know I pass the ball to him and, and it's it's uh, you know time for him to you know completely energize the scene which he does of course brilliantly and uh, he's a very great actor one of our great actors um, it was great finding of course singing in the rain because this is gives us a and and this was Stanley, of course that um, came up with the scene that I'm in the bath soaking in the tub, and just start to sing it. And in fact, I did a whole take, sang the whole song, and he said, "Great print, okay." And the um, script girl come running up and she said, "Oh, he sang the wrong words." <laughs> I had to get back in the bath, sing it all again. <laughs> so uh, that was kind of fun. It's the next little scene when he's outside the door listening to Singing in the Rain, where, of course, he, he that's when he came out with a memorial line to me that he felt that he was taking a dump. Now, the bathroom was a set, though, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a set, yes. It wasn't really behind that door. 
No. <laughs> but um, it was in the same house, and it was a it was a house, you know, that um, we were using, and um, it was again not far from Stanley's house. You know, he didn't want to drive too far. No, no. And you didn't want to get behind Stanley, by the way. Um, at the end of the day, when they said rap, because um, he would get in that Mercedes of his and drive at 10 miles an hour. And, you know, on those small little country roads in England, there'd be lines of traffic behind him, people trying and going, what is the holdup? I'd be going, you know. And, of course, we'd eventually find out it was Stanley <laughs> who would drive so slowly. He was terrified of... Um, I had him in my... I had a little sports car. I had an MGC. And his daughter, Vivian, was crammed in the back. And the one time I gave him a ride, and, of course, I gunned it. And he was yelping with fear. I, I loved it, of course. And Vivian was egging me on in the back, saying, Go on, show Dad, you know. <laughs> now, uh, I think you as an actor, Malcolm, have to uh, comment on Patrick McGee's reaction shot here, and I always wonder how long did he hold that face? Well, that's that, what I'm uh, saying. This is the dump. This is the <laughs> taking a dump. Um, face is, he holds it so long. I know. Um, Stanley was just, you know, egging him on. <laughs> Go, more, more. I mean, he's sort of doing the same sort of reaction, although way more, and I'm doing to the Beethoven. It's kind of the, mirroring the same... Now, this is pure Morecambe and Wise. This is my Eric Morecambe moment. Uh, for listeners that don't know who they are, they were a very famous comedy duo in England at the time. And I was, uh, I loved Eric Morecambe. I always find it very funny, his delivery. And, and this kind of stuff, all the way through, this is sort of my um, homage to him, if you like. Here's poor Dave Prowse carrying not only Patrick McGee, but also a wheelchair. And even if you're Mr. Universe, I'm telling you, the poor guy. Yes. And later, you know, uh, he would uh, train Christopher Reeve to be Superman. Really? Yeah. That was one of the other things that he had wow. accomplished. Of course. He was a very sweet man. Delightful man. Well, I'm glad, in this picture at least, you get to see what he looked like. Yes, I can't think of too many other films. That's uh, Christiana Kubrick's painting behind his head, you see? That's the garden, the vegetable garden at Abbott's Mead. Now, I know that your reaction here, of course, is uh, good acting, but uh, maybe, maybe uh, Patrick held that, held that uh, line and the pause so long because you literally look like you're j jumping out of your skin when he says it. Um, yeah, but... Yeah, this is great. I love all this. This is great comedy because, you know, um, I want to tell him that, of course, I, I suspect that it's doped and, you know, does he know, does he not know? Let's keep the suspense going. So, And then suddenly it hits me, uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> Quick, grab the bottle. Won't you... Join me? Won't you no. join me? Yeah. My health doesn't allow they never quite got that colour right for our Santa Steph. Looks like a rosé, doesn't it, from here? Ah. Oh. 1960 Chateau. I just read the label. You know. Steph? I think I just ad-libbed. Like, very good brand, sir. Very good, sir. Very nice. Smells nice, too. 
Mm, good color. This scene actually is long. You know, it's a yeah. long dialogue yeah, yeah, scene, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, he holds yeah. it really daringly long. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you have the other two uh, conspirators will come in and, uh, and they will Maggie have... Maggie Tysak, yeah, very Isaac. famous actress, a wonderful actress, and a man called John Savident who went on to be a huge star on a television soap opera called Coronation Street. Yes, it's really this scene... Glug, 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 glug. Cosy. No sophistication at all. Very nice taste. Very refreshing, sir. Very refreshing. I'm pleased you appreciate good wine. <laughs> Have another glass. Have another glass. Mm. His line readings are just... Uh, yeah, can't beat it. I mean, he's perfectly cast. The whole feeling of the film, and obviously appropriately You see, so there's, there's a tent there. Behind Dave Prowse on Christiana's painting, there's a tent. And in that tent, up in the, see in the left, just above my head now, uh, that's where the ping-pong table was kept, uh, where when we were doing the voiceover at the end of the film, Stanley cut the film, uh, and I think, like, he, uh, what we do is we'd... Um, I'd do a, a voice, we'd look at the book, and we'd work out what I was going to say. I'd do the voice, and then we'd go and play a game of ping pong in that tent and come back and do another piece of voiceover. My agent said to me, you know, Malcolm, Stanley never paid you for that two weeks of voiceover. I said, really? Oh, I'm, I'm going out there. I'll mention it uh, this afternoon. So just as I was leaving, I said, oh, by the way, Stanley, my agent just happened to mention to me that you never paid me for the two weeks of voiceover. <laughs> so he, he took out a slide rule out of his top pocket, looked like this, started working the slide rule, and he said, um, well, gee, um, you know, I'll pay you a week. And I went, a week? No, 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 it's two weeks. He goes, yeah, but one week was ping pong. <laughs> but I think Warner's made it up. I think they were embarrassed, and I think... Um, they went, oh, don't worry, we'll, we'll just send you a check. <laughs> Didn't Stanley have a bit of a reputation for tight-fisted? Yeah, oh, yeah, he did. He we, did. We were just saying earlier that this, um, uh, appropriately, the whole tenor of the film is British, isn't it? I mean, really, in a sense, the only American thing about the film is the director. And I see the lights again, all one-source lighting. That's what's lighting the scene. Amazing, these lights. Um, it's very British. It is, yes, I, I suppose it is. I mean, um, it's a brilliant combination, isn't it? Uh, of, of American filmmaking and yeah. utilizing British cast and situations. Because unlike British movies, generally speaking, of the period, yeah. uh, you can tell that they seem so anti antiquated, don't they? Uh, and this one doesn't date at all. Well, I don't think uh, Lindsay Anderson's film would work. Well, no. But um, certainly, this has a Hollywood sheen on it, um, if you like. It's, um, I mean, just beautifully lit in a, in a way that British cameramen never even... Well, they had some great cameramen, Jeffrey Unsworth and people like that, but, you know, that were making great films in Hollywood. And... Um, you know, but there's only one Stanley Kubrick. It's like there's only one John Ford, you know. Um, we're talking about, you know, one of ten of the greatest directors that ever worked in this medium. I mean, 
some people would say he is the greatest. Um, I would say that he's, you know, one of five or ten or whatever. But, you know, there are many greats. You see, Mrs. Um... Like all great artists, Kubrick uh, received or was on the receiving end of great praise, but also great criticism. Obviously, yeah. the more hmm. singular your work is, the more, yes. the more detractors as well as admirers you have, I think. I don't think that anybody really questioned the fact that he was a very great director. I, I think what you could say, um, plainly devil's advocate for a moment, is that a lot of his films seem rather detached and uh, you don't really get to know the people. But not in this film. I think this one and possibly Lolita, the James Mason character. But um, I was very lucky that uh, I was able to bring a humanity to this part, you know. And I think that that was um, why he cast me. I think you can draw actually a very accurate uh, comparison between you in this film and James Mason in Lolita because mm. both are characters that are heavily flawed, let's say, that right. ultimately become Absolutely. very sympathetic. And also right. those perhaps right. may be the two most blackly comic parts yes. in all of Stanley Kubrick's work. Yes. Outside of perhaps a caricature like uh, George C. Scott or Sterling Hayden in Stop the Yes, or of course um, Peter Sellers. That was my great Eric Morecambe moment. Boom. In the pine. Thank God they did put a little bit of sponge. I wondered about that. Between the spaghetti and the plate. Because um, otherwise you could have had a broken nose there. I think. Yeah, definitely. Juliet. This is John Savident that you mentioned earlier. Yes, there you are. Yes, he was in Corrie for years. Yeah. You know, for audiences that perhaps weren't uh, alive when this film was first released, it's almost difficult now, isn't it, to explain to somebody how seismic, in fact, the response to this film was. There were all of the articles declaiming it as pornographic. There were the articles calling it the greatest movie that had ever been made. Do you have any recollection of, of going through that publicity tour that I think you went on? You know, Oh, my God, it was amazing. What, what was that like? I think the thing that really struck me the most was that, you know, as far as I was concerned, it made this black comedy, and I found it very, very funny. Now, the first time I ever saw it with an audience... There was not one laugh. I mean, they sat there in shocked and stunned silence. They'd never seen this sort of orchestrated sort of violence. Also, you know, the look of the first 20 minutes of the film is so extraordinary and so such a weird concept of the future that people never... They thought the whole film, by the way, was all this futuristic look. It's only the first 20 minutes. Uh, and then, you know, the, this, the whole of the moral of the film, of course, is, is sort of forgotten. And the thing that the press leaped on was, of course, the violence. And every mugging in England, practically, was blamed on A Clockwork Orange. And, um, in fact, that is why Stanley withdrew the film in England. You know, after a year of it being playing in the West End, um, according to Christiana, you know, uh, Kubrick, uh, the family got these death threats and uh, Stanley took them to the police and the police suggested that, uh, in fact, uh, he withdraw the film, which he did for, the, for as long as he was alive. Then it was only after he died that family then decided to reissue the film because, um, you know, I guess Stanley was gone. So 
you know. And um, so in England, you could never see the film, and and it had mythical sort of proportions because of this. And you know, you, of course, you could go to Paris and bring a, you know, pretty ropey old video of, of it and stuff. And um, so really, it, in England especially, there was this huge sort of myth about it and um, and all the rest of it. And um, you know, it's only now, after all these years, that you, if you see it now, and I have done, I saw it in Australia last year when we opened up a Stanley Kubrick exhibit in, a, in the um, Melbourne Film Museum. And it's only then that the audiences nowadays, you know, roar with laughter all the way through the film. It, it, uh, they really get it, and the shockability is gone. And, and really, the film that I thought I made has suddenly come to the fore, and it's like the cream rises to the top. And, and I must say, actually, I'm kind of thrilled that that's happened, and that's one of the great things that's happened. The other thing is, which is rather funny, is that uh, they showed the film a few years ago, not long ago, actually, at the Egyptian theater, brand new print. And it, you know, new print, it looked like it was made yesterday. And then I did a question and answer afterwards, and I happened to, you know, go to the bathroom, and everyone had left, and I came out, and I saw this kid in the foyer of the theater who passed me, and he goes, hey, uh, oh, man, yeah, clockwork, right, clockwork? I said, that's right, that's right. I mean, you know, I'm thinking, what a moron. What do you think we're doing here? And he goes, uh, which part? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, the guy. And he goes, oh, the old guy. <laughs> so... You know, it's amazing that, um, of course, this is for me like, you know, going through a family photo album, you know. This is what I did when I was a kid, you know. Um, it's amazing, really. But um, did I know that it was going to be a classic uh, film that would go down in the annals of film as one of the most... Um, I suppose it's it's one of the biggest cult films that was, has ever been made in the history of film. Of course not. I knew we'd made a really good film, a very interesting film. Uh, I didn't even dare think that it may be a great one. Um, you just, you know, you're just doing it moment by moment, and it takes a great man to put all those moments together. And, you know, in Kubrick, you had a visionary in many ways. Uh, you know, I think, and I can, you know, say this, and I know that his, Jan Harlan, his brother-in-law, says it too, that he found in me the perfect vessel for him, and we were perfect for each other at that time in our lives. And, you know, I, I was a, th a theatre actor, and I'd been reasonably, you know, I, I was just ready for Stanley Kubrick. I don't know why, but I guess my sense of humour, I'm from the north of England, and I just understood it, you know. I understood the feeling of the times, the sort of rebellion in the air. Of course, I was never a hoodlum, and nothing like. I'm very middle class, actually, and ludicrously so, but I understood it. And what I did understand, more than anything, I think, was the vulnerability of this character, which is very important. This, by the way, the scene coming up here now, is the only one that was completely improvised and is left untouched when she's showing me the pictures on the on the screen. You actually make up the responses? Yes, I do. There and then, because we shot it a number of times, and I said, oh, I'm getting so tired of these answers. Let me make it. Can I just make up anything? He goes, you know, try it. This 
this lady, I've forgotten her name now, but she, she was a lovely actress, and she was actually on a very popular TV show called Zed Cars, playing a sergeant or something. No, no. I've had kids quote this to me, these, you know, little improvisations. It's amazing. But again, the film needed a kick in the ass. It needed this energy that came from this spontaneity, and it's... It sort of, um, it just happens by luck, often. That that's what was required. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I know Stanley didn't really understand it, and neither did I. But um, it was just, uh, you know, the, the responses that I had to this were, were getting tired and old and very unspontaneous. And so by kicking it into this, it just... It, it just lifts it, and it's taking us now into the final moments of the film and the final scenes. So it's, it's sort of a, a nice way to do it. And, of course, where the film actually ends is with Alex being reinstated to his former self. And when mm. Burgess had originally written the book, he had had a happy ending chapter, which is after Alex is restored to his good self. Uh, he then has a change of heart. He wants to be a family man. He wants to settle down. Oh, that was only because the publisher asked for it, either in America or England. I can't yes. remember which. Years later, it was it was published as a kind of a bonus, as an as an addendum. But yeah. uh, of course, the book ends as we know it with "I was cured all right" as That's appropriately it. where the film ends. Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, Stanley told me he said, "Don't even read it." What about your yourself? When the film came out, in the aftermath, what happened to you? Well, you know, I, I was sort of a reasonably well-respected actor in England. And, um, you know, I'd had a very big success with a film called If, which had travelled very well to New York and the big cities of America. But nothing like an international huge movie like this became... I think it became one of the biggest hits that Warner's had that year, which was pretty amazing for an X-rated movie, or at least it started off as an X. And, you know, I, I, I guess I knew that things were never going to be quite the same because I was at home in London and they started screening it in New York and my phone started ringing all through the night of people having seen it and... Just people that I knew from New York had seen it and were going ballistic, saying, oh, my God, and, you know. It's one of my favorite scenes, um, is this one. Um, now, poor old Anthony Sharp had a lot of um, exposition here, and um, I got kind of bored. And so, I just as a joke, I sort of, you know, did a kind of cuckoo-in-the-nest thing, and, and, of course, Stanley built the whole scene around that it was and and it's of course it's right because you you know it the film's kind of over and you're not really interested you don't care you you get it you know you don't need it ladled out great sir just great <laughs> can i do anything more for you minister? so on top of all of his exposition he gets to feed you as well yeah uh that was great that was just a he's so pompous he's so good he, Stanley was so pissed with this actor because he's, he came to me and he went, you'll never believe what, he, what just happened. I went, what happened? He went, Anthony Sharp gave me back the script and said, you may be needing this. I said, yeah. Well, he goes, he didn't want to keep it. It's a Stanley Kubrick film. He didn't want to keep the script. Torches of the damned. That's great. Torches of the damned, sir. Torches of the damned. Oh, look, 
The film, of course, gave Stanley the autonomy that he obviously craved mm -hmm. and that he, from that point on, did just whatever film he felt like doing. You know, he never had to... Uh, to uh, ever, you know, ask for somebody to, uh, uh, you know, okay to make a film again. No. Not sure whether that's a good thing or not, to be well, honest with you. some people might say that uh, it somehow, you know, takes away some of the r risk factor. And uh, I mean, listen, I, I'm obviously very biased, but I think this is honestly, um, well, this is, I think, one of his great films. But... You know, if we were watching Lolita, you'd have to say that's a great film and certainly Strange Love and 2001. I'm sure Jack Nicholson saw The Shining and, you know, and you could go on. But um, that's the mark of the man, how great he was. And honestly, that the films are so different, really. Um, you know, Paths of Glory is an extraordinary film. Really an extraordinary film. And... Um, you know, Stanley's whole development is quite amazing. And, you know, all his paranoia and stuff, um, quite extraordinary. You know, he wouldn't fly, although he had a private pilot's license, you know. And sometimes he wore a crash helmet in the car. I mean, he did one. I mean, I actually saw that. I know Matthew Modine said, oh, he, you know, he never did. But um, he did when I, you know, he did once or twice. And um, there were so many sides to this fascinating man, you know. Was having a meal with him once at the house, and you know, it was all takeaway. And he started eating the dessert right in the middle of, uh, you know. And I said, "How come you're eating?" He goes, "Well, that's you know, it all goes down the same way. Who cares? I mean, that's how Napoleon used to eat." And he had this real Napoleon thing going on. And uh, I wish, I wish he'd made that film. It would have been uh, fascinating to see it. it was that? That's uh, I, I suppose it must have been. The one regret he must have had, that he, he never got to make that film. But, you know, after Clockwork Orange, I guess he could have made anything because it was a huge, huge hit. And Stanley Kubrick became a man of mythic proportions because he was also rather, you know, reclusive and all that. In fact, there was a man going around London pretending to be Stanley Kubrick, you know, in restaurants. as Table for four for Stanley Kubrick. Oh, my God, here he, you know, nobody knew what he looked like. And even, I think Stanley was on the front of Newsweek magazine, and you, you know, there's a picture of him with his camera, um, which actually is his viewfinder. And if you turn the page and you look who the photographer was, S. Kubrick. He'd done it on a, you know, a timing device through a mirror. So Stanley liked to be in control. And the one thing that really drove him nuts was that the actor was always um, the one thing that you couldn't really control and that they were liable to, you know, go off in any tangent. And he, he was always a little wary about actors, you know, and I always used to play on that somewhat. Just looking at the end here, what a great, beautiful ending this is. And, and we got this such a great take. Yes, a great facial expression. It really it changes, you know, into this back to Alex from the beginning and when the music starts to play that, you know, he's loving the fame, loving it, you know, the celebrity. Oh, yeah, yeah. Give me more, give me more. It's like just like American Idol. <laughs> and then the music comes in and, ooh, boy. Oh. Oh. Oh, yeah. That's it. <laughs>
That's a great shot. There you are frolicking with another gorgeous babe. Yep. Katya White, very beautiful, beautiful girl. And um, God, we sort of had a laugh doing that. I was cured all right. I'm so here you are. Would you say that if, uh, if you had to do it all over again, you would make The Clockwork Orange? At the age of 62, I don't know which part I'd play. I'd, I'd be the writer now, but um, would I, of course I would do it again. Uh, yes, it's, you don't get parts like this, but once in a life, you know, and I was born to play it, and um, I seized it, and I knew early on this was going to be an extraordinary experience. You never know how it's quite going to turn out, you know, of course you don't know that. And you certainly don't know whether you'd be talking about the film 35 years later. And, and But here it is, it's there for all time. And every generation of kid, you know, at colleges and stuff, they find it again. It's sort of, in a weird way, it's a sort of, um, it's, a, it's a sort of a, a, a transition for them. They find it themselves, that generation, and, and they... You know, they love it and they freak out about it and, and all the rest of it. And I'm very lucky that I was cast, really, of course. And, you know, and looking at it again, it, it just reminds me um, how much I loved the old man, Stanley himself, an extraordinary human being and never will meet anyone of the, his like again. He was so interesting, I suppose, intellectually insatiable. Uh, he wanted to know everything about everything. And... Um, it was fun because uh, my other great direct friend was Lindsay Anderson, who we've talked about, and I used to sort of play him off between each other a bit, you know, and um, it was kind of fun game that I used to play. Stanley was an extraordinary man that went on, of course, and made some great films after this, but I like to think this is absolutely Stanley Kubrick at the top of his form. Well, speaking as a person who is very glad that you made this movie, I would just say thank you, Malcolm, for joining us on our audio commentary. Pleasure. Thank you. <laughs>